Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Fans, if you're into sports betting, BetOnline is where you should go to win money today. Whether it's live bets during games or futures for who you think's going to win the championship, BetOnline has all the latest odds, news, and information for all of your online sports betting needs. Visit the website today or use your mobile device to join and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. So before the next big game, head on over to BetOnline and start playing today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Welcome to the show, folks. We have a White Sox folk hero here on this episode. The man who, with one swing, won a World Series game and helped secure a championship on Chicago's south side. Mark Jeff Blum, known primarily for his defense, also a heck of a storyteller and a friend of yours. Yeah, an incredible guy, incredible teammate. And I'll tell you this, Mike, in 2005, we were teammates in San Diego. He ends up getting traded and his life changed because of that trade to the White Sox. And we'll hear all of those stories and the impactful moments that he had with the White Sox, but also on that fan base. Jeff, great to have you with us, buddy. 14 seasons in the big league, six different clubs. Look back through your fantastic lens. Tell us about your signature moment. That that's pretty easy. Other than hanging out with Mark for, for a couple of years and learning everything I know about the game in 2005 <laughs> with the San Diego Padres, where in spring training, I think we were both on the bubble and surprisingly avoided that, uh, right. that cut day. And <laughs> fortunately uh, we made it through that test and go through the course of the season. And I think everything's great because my wife has given birth to triplets. I'm playing in San Diego, family and friends are coming to the games. We're in first place. Um, I'm even actually getting some playing time and uh, poof, I'm tapped on the shoulder and I get traded to the Chicago White Sox and we finish the season number one in the American League Central and end up in the World Series. And after two games in Chicago, two really good games against the Houston Astros uh, in Chicago, we go to Houston where the opportunity for uh, National League rules to come into effect and uh, therefore the bench comes into effect and it took it took 13 and a half innings for me to get into a world series game. But the fact of the matter is I actually made it into a world series game. I came in on a double switch with Tadito Aguchi in the 13th inning and played second base for, for a couple of innings. But I had a, um, I was fortunate enough to have an at bat in the 14th inning in a tie ball game uh, at the time was the longest game in world series history. And I had a two Oh count. I had a young pitcher on the mound and he missed a spot by a good foot and a half and I, I barreled it up and shot it out of the ballpark and uh, I actually qualify for a game winning home run of game three of the 2005 World Series and that is by far the the greatest swing uh, I, I took in my career and I really feel like, you know, that is that swing not only gave me the opportunity to say I have a signature moment, but I think it extended my career for a good three or four years after that too. Yeah, Blummer, I mean, speaking of that, too, longest game, as you mentioned, five hours, 41 minutes. Uh, but that swing, let's not minimize this because uh, this was a huge swing because so many years the White Sox were just trying to get there and get to the World Series. And that's a magical moment for a franchise that was starving for that. Uh, did that come into play when you were around the bases and you had that moment? Yeah, you know what? That was actually one of the things. When you start out a playoff run, and you know this because you got you got an opportunity, I believe, in '98 to go to the World Series. You know those those steps are are crucial, and you really don't take anything for granted as you go game by game trying to get to that position where you're in a World Series. So, we beat the reigning World Champs in the first round, Boston Red Sox, and uh, you know we had a magical moment where El Duque came out with the bases loaded, nobody out, and got us out of a jam where we swept the Red Sox. So we kind of had the realization that man, we are, we're one, one series away from getting to the world series. And that's when the media starts to jump in. But even as a, uh, even as a player, you know, this when you're underneath and you're going through the tunnels of stadium of your home stadium, and you see some of the pictures and you start to understand the history of your ball club, you understand how long it has been. And it, I believe it was 86, 86 or 88 years for the Chicago White Sox. And then you, you know, you start to win some games and you get to that World Series moment. So we, it was at the forefront of our minds when we got to that World Series that we actually had an opportunity 
to leave a mark on that organization and in that city. And it's kind of funny that, you know, as we're thinking about, you know, the, the 1918, I believe, you know, Chicago White Sox, we're also thinking about the 1986 Chicago Bears, because mm-hmm. we, were, we know right. that they celebrate that team every single year for winning mm-hmm. the Super Bowl in 1986. And we're like, not only do we have a chance to break a curse, we also have an opportunity to be immortalized in probably one of the greatest cities in the, on the planet. So as, as that home runs being hit and running around the bases and just understanding what it meant to me personally, as soon as I hit home plate and started to head back to the dugout, you can see it in all the replays, that entire dugout was up on top, either on the top step or leaning over the railing. I mean, I was swarmed by about 30 people when I got back to the dugout, just in the realization that we were getting one step closer to uh, realizing that dream and breaking that curse. Interesting aspect to it. There's so many layers to this, which I think uh, the detail part of it is great. Um, you were a former Astro, so you're going against your former club. Um, so yep. that's weird for for all our listeners. They they don't understand that. You just think, well, you're you're in a different uniform. You're fine. Um, there's an interesting aspect to that. Whether they let you go, whether you uh, wanted to go on your own, but that's uh, that magnifies it. You hit the plate, you make a great point about everyone on the top step, over the railings. They couldn't wait. They're slapping, they're, they're high-fiving it. The emotion part of it is great. You come out and you blow a kiss. And I, <laughs> I have a feeling of knowing it was. And if you watch the video, it's really cool because it's hard to kind of collect yourself in big moments, no matter what that is, whether it's a regular season game. This is a playoff game, Blummer. What what went into that? And then thinking, going back to the dugout, uh, take us through that. Yeah, it, you're right in the sense that it was a bittersweet moment because a lot of the guys on the Astro team, I had played with them just a year and a half previous in 2003 before I got traded to Tampa Bay in 04 and that whole debacle. But it was bittersweet because I knew Jeff Bagwell, Craig Biggio, you know, Adam Everett, Morgan Ensbert. There were so many guys in that other dugout that, that I didn't, I wanted to jump out of my skin and fist pump, bat flip, throw everything around and just celebrate the moment. But I knew if I did, I was going to hear it uh, from friends. So it was a little more subdued. It was just a little bit of a fist pump. And uh, the reason I blew that kiss after I hit home plate is because in attendance were my mom, my brother, and my wife with our oldest daughter, Mia, who was 15 months at the time. And my wife previously had just given birth to our triplets. And so it was kind of a big year. It was an emotional year, but it was kind of, you know, it was just a celebration of everything that my mom had done, uh, sharing those backyard moments with my brother, and then sharing the moment with obviously your spouse who, who does so much throughout the course of a season in dealing with just ballplayers, period, and, and, and supporting us in every sense that they could. The fascinating part about that story is that I blow the kiss and I come back and the game's over. We win it and we're exhausted. I see my wife, you know, my daughter's asleep in her arms. And I'm like, babe, can you believe that happened? I blew that kiss. It was so great. Did you, I, I hope you caught that and saw that. And she goes, she's got her head down kind of like almost sheepishly ashamed of what happened. And I'm going, what, what the hell's going on? I'm like, dude, we just, we just won game three. And she's like, yeah, I saw it. And I'm like, why are you so upset? She goes, I saw it on TV. And I was like, you saw it on TV. I go, why weren't you in your seat? She goes, well, Mia was losing it. It was late. I couldn't find a place, you know, where she could really, you know, uh, settle down and fall asleep. So I went into the Astros wives lounge. (laughs) 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 So imagine this. My wife knows everybody on the Astros, knows all the wives, you know, Patty Biggio, uh, you know, Jennifer Everett, Christy Ensberg, all these people. And she's just kind of wandering around the tunnels of Minute Maid, trying to figure out where she can have my daughter rest. And she finds her way into the Astros Wives Lounge. And she said the lights were off. They're all holding their their newborns and their young kids. The game's late. Everybody's miserable. But the TV's on. And she sees the home run. And everybody just kind of went, <gasps> and then she just, yeah, she celebrated the moment in the Astros Wives Lounge. And that's, uh, that's, that's where the kiss ended up. <laughs> Did she get booed? inside the room yeah she was immediately kicked out security ran her out of it no i'm just kidding uh no it was actually pretty cool she's she's you know she's obviously much more likable than i am and she actually uh got uh you know it was she got some quiet high fives around the wives lounge in uh during that world series 
You know, what's interesting to me too, is it, there are folks who look at that home run, they forget you still had to play a game four. So you're up three yep. games to none, right? And it, you'd think the momentum of that might inspire you early, but you're locked in a battle in that game four till uh, Jermaine Dye, who had himself a wonderful series, comes through. But the only run of that game, uh, a one-run game, mm-hmm. comes in the eighth inning. You guys had cushion, I guess, but walk us through the tension uh, going through the back end of that ball game. Yeah, it was pretty amazing because, you know, we knew, you know, every the game before going 14 innings, both teams exhausted their benches, both teams exhausted their uh, their bullpens. I mean, for crying out loud, you know, Mark Burley comes in and saves game three and he was the game one starter. So, you know, it was like how if we get to game five, is Burley going to be able to bounce back and make that start? And fortunately, our starting pitching was incredible. Oh, man, I, I, I'm. I'm almost positive that it was Freddie Garcia, but our starting pitching in that postseason was lights out. And we did have the cushion of a three-game lead, and we get to that eighth inning, but it was a little bit of a grind because it was amazing to me, and it's still amazing to me, too, that we don't talk about that World Series a little bit more often. I know it was a a sweep in the sense that we won four out of the, you know, four straight games, but the win differential in that series was only a plus six for us. So every game was was pivotal. There were moments in there where things could have gone the other way, but, you know, we had Joe Creedy at third base playing Brooks Robinson type third base. We had a starting staff that was reminiscent of the Baltimore Orioles in the late 60s. I mean, we had everything going our way, and we obviously had – you know, it, it, depending on how you look at it, the brilliance of Ozzie Guillen pushing all the right, right buttons. But it, it just so happened that it only took one run to win that ball game. But you wouldn't imagine, you would not even believe the the relief after that game was over because everybody was so exhausted to a man. We were ready just to shut it down, go inside, have a couple of beers. So when you do you do win it, what is the initial? feeling from you you're imagine taking in a lot in that moment well you know throughout my career I mean I was a good seven years in but throughout my career being traded a couple of times and everything goes back to 2004 for me that was one of the most miserable experiences I've ever had uh, in, in baseball having to play for Lou Pinella in Tampa Bay on a team that was just getting obliterated in the American League East and, you know, my, my career was in question. I finished that year hitting 215. Uh, I was sent scrambling in the offseason trying to find a job. And, uh, you know, I can tell it now. But at the time, I, you know, I had an agreement with the Philadelphia Phillies to go back east. And at the last minute, I called my agent. I'm like, hey, man, my wife's pregnant with triplets. I go, it'd be yeah. great if I could play on the West Coast. Uh, just start, he started, you know, basically in Seattle and just worked his way down the coast calling teams until he got to San Diego. And you know, God bless Kevin Towers and may he rest in peace because if it wasn't for that guy, I wouldn't have ended up in San Diego where I kind of recharged my career in the, in the sense that I got to play for a winning team. I got to fight my way onto that ball club. And then uh, eventually I got traded, but you know, it, it, there was a lot of things that kind of culminated. So when we won that world series, it was, it, it was, it was elation to be honest, you know, I, I, it wasn't in the sense that, Oh my gosh, I reached the ultimate goal, but it was my thought that, Oh my gosh, it paid off, you know, all the hard work, you know, the trades, the different cities, the, the turmoil of 2004, the, the energy of my wife giving birth to three kids at once. I mean, it was everything at once just kind of came to fruition with that world world series title. And just being a ball player and understanding that, when my career is over and I'm sitting on this podcast talking to you guys, I get to say that I am a World Series champion, and that meant the world to me. Yeah, yeah. that's incredible, Blummer. Uh, um, we will intersect with Kevin Towers, the GM, um, a little bit later in this podcast, too, because I think it resonates to tie a bow on uh, what he meant for your career, too. And I think it's important yes. for our listeners to listen to that. So I, I want to finish this thought, too, because celebration is the greatest. I think. Uh, uh, you never minimize popping a bottle of champagne and celebrating never. with your teammates. Also, the parade. What resonates with you in that celebration and what you had? Uh, tell us a few stories, if you don't mind, about that celebration. 
Uh, you got to remember, I was the guy that got traded at the trade deadline. I wasn't a part of this team for two years. I didn't get drafted. I didn't get developed. I, I was the outsider who came in and jumped on the bandwagon with these guys and rode them to the World Series where I finally got my opportunity. But it was great in the sense that I actually had an impact, you know, so it kind of put me into into the mix as a part of that team. And the, to, the, to the credit of, the, uh, of that Chicago White Sox team, when I got traded and I showed up in Baltimore, uh, the, every guy to a man from, from Paul Konerko to the last guy in the bullpen came over to me and shook my hand and said, welcome here. And, but every guy said, welcome here. And they didn't say, don't screw it up, but they said, you better be ready to work. And, uh, you know, I kind of took that as I nice, let's, let's go get this thing. These guys have their mind in the right place. So it did make that celebration that much sweeter knowing that they welcomed me in, uh, they allowed me to be a part of what they had worked, you know, four months prior to, to get to this point and allowed me in and let me be a part of it. That's what made that celebration that much greater. And getting getting on those we had double decker buses starting at uh, the south side yeah. and if you know anything about chicago the south side is not the most savory place in the world but it's ours yeah. and you know even to this day and when i was playing there i would i wouldn't take a uh, lakefront i would drive through the south side to get to the ballpark um you get to know the people you get to see the atmosphere you get to understand why you know why the white Sox are important to the south side so it was kind of special that they put us on those buses in the South side and let us go through the South side as we got to downtown Chicago. But, you know, you see the only thing I can compare it to, cause it was mind blowing to me to know that a million and a half people were going to be lining the streets of Chicago to welcome us back from a world series championship. And everybody's seen the pictures from, you know, D-Day for World War II. And I'm not trying to compare this to war by any means, but just the, the imagery of people hanging out of windows, you know, 40, 50 stories in the sky, throwing ticker tape out the window and having it just rain down on us. As you pass the side streets, you couldn't see the end of the mob of people who were there. Uh, we get to the end of LaSalle Street and we're there's a stage set up. And, you know, Jerry Reinsdorf saying his thing, Ozzie Guillen saying his thing. Uh, I believe a couple of players, Paul Konerko's talking. There's a million and a half people stretched as we're, as we're being celebrated. And <laughs> uh, Steve Perry for Journey comes out of nowhere. I didn't know this dude was here. But we, we had been singing Don't Stop Believing the entire postseason. And, of course, Steve Perry of Journey, lead singer, jumps on the bandwagon. He's a part of it. And he shows up. Next thing you know, it's me, Jermaine Dice, AJ Pruszynski, and I think Aaron Rowan at the front of the stage singing Don't Stop Believing in front of a million and a half people. I mean, these are things that I'd never even would have dreamed of or <laughs> desired. But here I am, and I've got pictures of me and Steve Perry, you know, at the front leading a million and a half people uh, screaming Don't Stop Believing. So, uh, you know, it opened up so many avenues and created so many memories. But, you know, those are the things that I'll take away from it. And to this day, Every time we go through uh, Comiskey or uh, Guaranteed Rate Field now, uh, you know, the security guards, the front office, people will come out and say, hello, how are you doing? How's the family? Thank me for everything. So it, it was a unique atmosphere, and it was something that I am uh, eternally grateful for. You know what's interesting? Steve Perry seems like he's a fan of every team, and he, he right? always gets connected. I was with the Giants. <laughs> He's, Giants, he's, yeah, he's singing up there. And then we go to the Dodgers stadium. He's a Dodger fan because he's no. in Los Angeles. It, it, it's just like that, that weird extreme, uh, but it has, it resonates with me and it's hey, funny. Yeah, he's a, he's because, a stage five cleaner. You no, know, it's if you write a song with the lyrics, don't stop believing who's not going to adopt it. Right. It's right. every team, yeah. right. Queen was the same way with uh, we will rock you. Yeah. Right? Uh, he's yep. got a, he's got a sock shirt. The price says Perry on the back. I mean, <laughs> no doubt. he's got the giants. Hey, he's got the Dodgers. You, you know what's great about that? And you'll love this, Mark, because, I mean, you've traveled around the league. We've all been in every clubhouse. Yep. The visiting clubhouse guy for the Houston Astros, his name is Steve, Steve Perry. Perry. Right. So <laughs> during the World Series, we actually have – we got a picture of Steve Perry and Steve Perry together, and that, we, that, that was another thing that was just a highlight of that World Series. That's ideal. Uh, Blummer, I wanted to ask you too, which I think this is really cool because you touched on it just a little bit. Do you understand what Jeff Blum, the name – and that swing uh, did for so many of those Sox fans. I mean, do you understand that impact? And uh, obviously they remind you, but from your perspective, how does that make you feel? 
overwhelmed at times, to be honest, you know, and I mean, I appreciate you asking that question. I appreciate you thinking about that. And it literally gave me chills uh, thinking about it because at the time when you do something like that as a player, you're like, I'm just doing my job. I had an opportunity. And then, you know, you bask in the glory of actually having the opportunity and taking advantage of it. But at the same time, you know, for even to this day, you know, we're, we're pretty well removed from that, from that 2005 world series. And uh, like I said, going through the city and there's moments where you do kind of have that realization, but it was shortly after, like during that off season, when you, you start to get the fan mail or you show up in spring training the next year and you get that pile of fan mail and you start reading through it and you're signing the World Series card or you're signing other cards. But then all of a sudden you kind of get that letter. And I got several of these letters and I'm sure, uh, you know, other guys <clears throat> on the team got these letters, too, because like you said, it had been generations since the White Sox won a World Series. But to hear it from fans where you know, just as an example, I got one letter from a fan who said he, he literally took, you know, like a program from the world series and brought it to the gravesite of his dad wow. who taught him about baseball, who taught him to be a Chicago white Sox fan and just kind of sat there reading through the program, just recognizing what we had accomplished. And I think that's where, you know, <clears throat> sport can kind of transcend the humanity of things and just, you know, become a part of, of people's lives and bring generations together. And that was probably the most special and the most incredible thing is understanding that not only did it impact people who were there or were able to uh, enjoy it, you know, it, people were bringing it to their, the relatives who had passed away, who would have loved to have seen that situation. That's what's uh, kind of crazy to think about. It, it, we can't in any way minimize the impact that it has on any city when a championship's won, but that city in particular, it is so much the fabric of the country. Uh, not only is it centrally located, as we all know, but the people who make up that city, such hardworking, passionate fans, immortalized now forever you are out of the plaza. Um, at whatever name they want to stick on the stadium now uh, in the form of a statue, which is incredible, by the way. If you get a chance to get out to Chicago, you've got to check out the statue. You're a part of that. What did it mean to you, not only to know you're going to be part of it, then to go back and see it? This is actually a really good story. And I've got it. I mean, I don't, I don't, know, don't know if you guys do video, but there's a picture yep. of it right behind me over my shoulder. Um, so... In 2000, so 2006, I come back to the San Diego Padres and Scott Linebrink, a uh, former teammate of the Astros and Padres, signs a multi-year deal with the Chicago White Sox. So I had kind of, you know, just disconnected and become a San Diego Padre again, thankfully, and I'm going through spring training and unbeknownst to me, they have commissioned this statue and they, the statue was going to represent key moments in that World Series. And somehow Kelly Linebrink gets a hold of the information or is reading about it in the newspaper and gets a hold of my wife and goes, did you hear that they're doing this? And my wife's like, you got to be kidding me. So I believe we go to Chicago relatively early in the season, like April or May uh, to play the Cubs. And my wife is, you know, hey, I'm thinking about having my, my, uh, my parents come out. I'm thinking about having your mom come out. Uh, I'm going to bring the girls and I'm going, you know, typical ball player. I'm like, dude, come on. I'm trying to play the season. Now I got to entertain 17 people. I got to get hotel rooms. I got to leave tickets. You know, I, I go to complete complain mode instantly, but all of the, everybody shows up and my wife is like, Hey, we're going to go do something tomorrow morning uh, about 9. AM. And I'm like, God, it's so early. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm just pissing and moaning and I get in the, get in this limousine and my wife, we're start to go down to the South side. And I'm like, good Lord, what, you know, what's down here to possibly go check out. And, uh, she pulls up and right in front of like, you know, like, uh, you guys said, it's, it, there's a huge statue in front of the stadium that wasn't there the year before. And we get out and my wife's like, yeah, uh, Kelly Linebrink told me that they're erecting this statue and you're on it. And I, I lost it. You know, my mom's there, my family's there, my kids are there and we're staring at this thing and it's, you know, it's 10 feet tall. It's the connect, you know, the, the contact point on the swing. And I could not believe that something like that was made. And I was able to be a part of it. And you talk about just completely humbling yourself and going, Oh my gosh, what just happened? Uh, that was, that was that moment. And, uh, 
I don't know. I still to this day don't know how to explain it. It's one of those things that comes up in conversation. And of course, it's my silver bullet. If anybody's got a one up on me, I can bring it out and be like, yeah, but do you have a statue, you know, (laughs) but, (laughs) but, uh, but even to this day, you know, if and when we get to go back and travel again on the, you know, on the road, it's, it's one of those moments where I just kind of stop, I look out the window and I go, yeah, that, that really happened. It's, it's, a, it's a crazy realization that uh, you had an opportunity in a World Series to have an impact and then be immortalized like that is just, it's unbelievable, man. I don't, I don't know how to explain it. It's incredible. Blummer, it, it, what's amazing to me is, is growing up as a kid, whatever sport you wanted to watch, uh, whatever influence your, your parents or, or someone had on you to watch sports, and then there's that moment. Um, it, it's the impactful moment. You remember where you were, you remember what happened, and now you're involved in that statue. It has to be overwhelming at times. The other impact is putting that ring on for the first time. Um, what was that like? Because as you mentioned, you signed with the San Diego Padres and you're in a Padre uniform and they're doing the ring ceremony. I'm assuming you weren't at the ring ceremony. No, you're right. I wasn't. And, you know, what's kind of funny about that, we were, you know, Bochi was still the manager of the uh, San Diego Padres. And we all know that Bochi has got one of the better senses of humor within the game. And uh, so I can't remember the exact date, but we were pretty, we, you know, we were at least three or four weeks into the season. And uh, I had watched from afar as the uh, White Sox had gotten their uh, rings and they, you know, I got an email or something or a phone call that said, Hey, your rings on the way. Don't worry about it. We were, you know, I'm sorry. You couldn't be here for the ceremony kind of thing, but it's on its way. <clears throat> and it had to be four or five weeks into the season. And, you know, it's, it's at the end of a game and I, and I'm, and it, I'm sitting down tying my shoes and Fred Yulman taps me on the shoulder. Now keep in mind, Fred Yulman is the same damn guy that tapped on my shoulder July 31st, the year <laughs> <Right>. before. <laughs> So I'm having flashbacks. I'm like, I go, Fred, what the hell's going on? He's like, just come to Bochy's office. And I'm like, son of a bitch. <laughs> I'm like, is this happening again? And I go into, I go into Bochy's office and I mean, I don't know how they remembered, but they, Bochy and Kevin Towers are sitting in the same exact seat that they were sitting in the day I got traded. So Bochy's got his massive skull in his hands. He's holding it up. <laughs> Kevin Towers is on that couch in front of Bochy's uh, uh, desk sitting, you know, in the same exact spot. KT, KT does the same thing. He takes his hand and pats the seat. He goes, Blummer, you got to sit down. And I sit down and Boch starts, you know, mumbling, whatever he's mumbling. And uh, he pulls out the box and he goes, just kidding. He goes, your ring showed up. And, uh, you know, so I got to share that moment with, you know, with Bochy and KT opening the ring and checking things out and kind of reminiscing about it in that sense. But yeah, it, it was it was still special, and, and I actually appreciate the fact that Bochi and KT and Fred and those guys actually, you know, when you're in the game, you you recognize how special these moments are, and they made it special in kind of a comical way. So I I, I really appreciated that. I absolutely love that story. Uh, it, the other aspect too, it, you mentioned it, the manager Ozzy Gian, a former player, <laughs> crazy guy, and and, and I say yeah. crazy because he was as a player, he was very talkative. What was he like as a manager? What did he do for you? And how did that moment really resonate with a, a manager like Ozzy? Ozzy was the best. So you and I are old enough to actually play against Ozzy again. And uh, I remember playing against him. Uh, and then he was actually when Felipe, I was in Montreal in 99 through 2001. And I think it was halfway through 2000 when Felipe Alou gets fired or 2001 when Felipe Alou gets fired in Montreal and Jeff Torborg takes over as the manager and he brought in a whole new coaching staff and Ozzie Guillen turns out to be the third base coach. So I had an opportunity to get to know Ozzie Guillen on a personal level, on a coaching level. So I had plenty of experience with Ozzie Guillen, loved him. I loved him as a player. I loved him as a third base coach. Uh, the one thing about Ozzy that I think really endeared himself and, and made him easy to understand as a player, as a, as a player and a coach is that he never really lost the mentality or the energy of a player. I mean, this guy had a motor that was nonstop. Uh, he wanted to beat the hell out of everybody when they played the game and he kind of coached in that same way. So it was kind of, it was, it was fun to be around him, but you also understood that if you did great, 
he was going to glorify you and pump you up and say you were going to be the next, uh, you know, next Tony Gwynn or Cal Ripken. But if you screwed up, you were the worst player in the league and he was going to wear you out. <laughs> so as long as you got that understanding out of the way, he was an easy guy to play for. Um, and then playing for him as a manager was pretty special just because he was at the helm. He was the leader and he really let his guys go out and play. And Chicago was a unique market because of the attention you get on a daily basis. You know, there's, there's gotta be 50 reporters inside that clubhouse on a daily basis. And when I got traded over, we were 15 games up. Uh, that number started to uh, dwindle a little bit. The Indians were playing well. The Minnesota Twins were going bonkers. And things started to tighten up. And in all of Ozzy's madness, he would continue to be the forefront of the stories. It would never really got to the point where the players or the team, you know, kind of limping in or not playing as well would ever become the story because Ozzy would all of a sudden deflect and pop off or say something absolutely asinine where they, they would chase that story as opposed to wondering why, you know, we're slumping at the time or things like that. So I had an absolute blast playing for Ozzy Guillen. I can't appreciate him enough. And, you know, I really, and I didn't know this at the time. I didn't know it until maybe about 10 years after when we had our anniversary of the World Series, when he was uh, talking in a documentary and somebody asked him, you know, why in, you know, your team is as good as it is. Why in the hell did you trade for a guy like Jeff Blum, who's just a <laughs> peripheral role player, you know, utility type guy. And it's probably the greatest compliment I've ever gotten in my, in my playing career. Uh, they are talking to him and he kind of ran through, he's like, well, he's versatile. He could give uh, Konerko a day off. He could give Uribe a day off at shortstop. Konerko had a bad back. So we knew he could play third and back him up. So he starts going through all these logistical baseball things. And then his, the last thing he said is I also knew, can I cuss on this thing? Of course. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, just be forewarned. So Ozzy, in this documentary says, I also knew he wasn't going to fuck up my clubhouse. And I was like, all right, I go, Great. that, that was probably the best compliment I could have ever gotten knowing that I could be inserted in a first place team and, and, and mix right in. And that's one thing that I really took pride in is that, uh, you know, I, I was able to adapt and contribute at the same time. It's fascinating to me every time I hear those stories. I know Mark's had some similar experiences where sometimes being a good man and a good person yes. can extend your Mark career, right? One of those guys. And help you integrate yourself into a club. As you had said, man, that team was a roller coaster, 15 up. I think you guys were as close as a game and a half from losing yeah. the division. I think you finished like six up to, to round out the year, but remarkable stories. Uh, before all that happens, though, you'd mentioned uh, you had a chance to work, we'll say, with Ozzy back in Montreal. Let's go all the way back uh, to your big league beginning uh, in 1999 when you get the call up by Montreal. Do you remember that experience? Who told you and your immediate reactions thereafter? I do. I, I, I vividly do. And uh, it, it was kind of funny because like that was my, I was 25. That I was going into my 25, 26 year old year. So, you, you know, in baseball terms, that's not exactly spry or young or prospect. Mm -hmm. So I, I was going into that year and I was actually enrolled to go back to school at Cal. And, uh, so I went into that season with the idea, okay, this is it. I'm going to, I'm just going to go balls to the wall, just play as hard as I can. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't, I'm going to go back to school and I've got my, you know, my golden parachute with an education. And, you know, we get about to that halfway point of, uh, the triple a season and I make the triple a all-star all-star game. I get to play in that. That was, you know, down in new Orleans, which was super exciting. And then it was a couple of weeks after that, that, uh, my girlfriend at the time who became my wife, Corey was out visiting and we went to a movie, I believe August, the night of August 8th. And uh, we're watching the Thomas crown affair. We come back and remember this is pre cell phone. You know, I don't have a pager. I've got no form of communication with the outside world other than getting back to that landline. And uh, we come home and I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm living in a basement of a host family's house. Now it's a two bedroom basement. And my roommate is a student at the university of Ottawa who speaks French. And I come back and he's watching, uh, you know, whatever sports center is up in uh, Canada at the time. And we're, he's watching the, uh, the highlights of baseball 
and he turns around, he's all like, you know, in his broken English says, Hey, welcome back. You know, there's a, somebody called for you. And he said, it's, it was Jim, like beetle, Jim beetle or somebody. And the GM at the time was Jim Beatty for, for the uh, Montreal Expos and Bill Stoneman. And uh, I go, that's interesting. And I mean, no lie, like 30 seconds later on the TV, they show highlights of the Expos and Orlando Cabrera is hustling down the first baseline and you see him crumble past the bag. It turns out he broke his ankle and I got the call because Orlando Cabrera broke his ankle, was going to be out for the season. It just so happened I was playing shortstop in Ottawa and they said, hey, here's your chance. And uh, I got called up August 9th of 1999 against the San Diego Padres. And I believe it was two days after Tony Gwynn had gotten his 3000th hit. So it was, the timing was unbelievable. It was great. It was phenomenal. I remember every piece of it. I went two for four with a couple RBIs and uh, never looked back. Thankfully. It's interesting, Blummer, because of, uh, you mentioned, go, going against the Padres, so many things intersect, and you don't even know what that story is. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's beautiful about this yep. podcast because the remembrances and your path and your journey is not always, hey, I'm, I'm playing 20 years with the same team. I mean, it, our style of player is, hey, man, you got to mix and match. you got to be a good teammate, all of those aspects. But, of course, you didn't know that. In your debut, you have that hit. Did you keep the ball, by the way? The oh, first yeah. hit? Yeah, it's floating around here somewhere. I think it's. I've got a safe over here that's got a couple of baseballs in it. I definitely have that. Yeah, it was off Matt Clement. I love that. Uh, two for four, as you mentioned. Uh, but let's take us into what's exciting: uh, the first home run. Um, what was <laughs> what was that like? Take us into uh, that at bat with your home run. Well, and that's that's another really interesting story because Montreal earlier in the season was in Colorado. So they were in Colorado, and and sadly enough, that series was canceled between the Montreal Expos and Colorado Rockies because of Columbine. Uh, you right. know, the, the Columbine shooting happens. They cancel the games, and, and Montreal goes on and continues their season. So in the middle of the season, somehow they were able to find a, a, a series where I think they were going back for either a two- or three-game series – and they had us play, they had us scheduled to play two doubleheaders. So we were going to play f- five games in four days, five wow. games in three days. Sorry. So it, it lended itself to more opportunities, but it also lended us a sell, an opportunity to go back to Colorado. So that was, I think, my first road trip. And we get into Colorado and obviously pre-humidor where the ball is flying. It was a, a, one of the best places ever to hit. And uh, Mike DeJean... I believe hung me a split finger and I, and I hit a line drive to right field that, you know, how it is in Colorado, you play there's nothing comes out of the air for whatever reason. And it just a laser into the, into the seats and uh, you know, the thin air, the excitement, I couldn't breathe. I was running about 110 miles an hour, I think. And I, I got my first big league home run. You get your first big league home run. The next day you hit two. I mean, I mean, is it, is this the home run hitter? This is when they project Blummer. They project, Hey, uh, if Blum exactly. was playing 162 games, he would hit 98 homers in the year. Uh, what was that like? What was that day like? Because I don't want to minimize a two home run game. Yeah. And, and you know, that game was awesome too, because I think there were four, there were, I think there were four or five guys in that game who had multiple home runs. It was a typical Colorado game where it was, you know, the final score is 15 to 13. I think Dante Bichette, you know, Andres Galarraga, there were th- four Colorado Rockies that had two home runs apiece. And then I was the lone expo that had two home runs. Uh, it was a game that uh, I think I got it off. It was Daryl Kyle and then Dave Veer, Veers. Yes. Dave Dave Veers. Yep. Um, yeah, but Daryl Kyle, thank God, man. You know, he, I remember seeing his curveball, and you had at bats against him too, where you mm-hmm. kind of hear, you could hear the curveball before you saw it because the spin was out of control and it just dart off the table. And even in Colorado, that thing was wicked. But he threw me a fastball up and in. You know, I bail out, get to it, and it, and it goes out of the ballpark. And then I got Dave Beers later in that game. And I'm, I'm running around going, man, I go, if I ever get traded or, become a free agent i'm signing in colorado man this place is awesome (laughs) yeah you know what Uh, the late daryl kyle uh, known for having uh one of the best if not the best curveballs uh he was incredible and what a great teammate he was too as well so many people and so many great stories about daryl um i want to take you to that trade because you got traded from montreal um and you go 
you go over. Uh, this was uh, probably difficult for you to take. What was it like uh, getting traded for the first time? It was really interesting, to be honest with you, because, you know, at that time with Montreal, they had actually uh, switched over management. You know, Major League Baseball had to step in. I was on contraction calls where, you know, you and the Minnesota Twins are going to be contracted. And then uh, Major League Baseball steps in. Jeffrey Loria, you know, sold the Expos, bought the Marlins. I don't. It, it was a wild time to kind of see how ownership was moving around. But uh, in 2002, that finally happens, and they've got new management. Uh, you know, there's a couple of new guys coming up through the Montreal Expos organization, and I'm kind of looking at it, going, "Oh, dude, you know, is this the place for me? How is this going to going to work out?" And on March 12th. Uh, in, in West Palm, we had a game scheduled with the Dodgers where uh, we were going to Vero Beach and they were taking everybody. I looked at the travel roster and I wasn't on the travel roster. I think I might have been the only position player who wasn't on there. So immediately I'm going, oh, dude, I go, they're keeping me back. Am I, am I done or am I getting released? Am I getting sent down? You know, you'd start to think the worst. My, you know, my wife is coming down to visit. There's a lot of things going on. So the team takes off. It's, it's pouring rain the entire morning. I, I can't get my work in that I want to get because the fields are soaked. Uh, I go hit in the cage for a little bit. And then the minor leaguers start to come in and use our cage because they're covered. So I'm like, ah, forget it. I'm going to get in my car. I'm going to go uh, deposit a check. I'm going to go to the grocery store. I'm going to go clean the apartment. I'm going to get ready for my girl coming in. And uh, I'm, I'm rolling out. And at the, by this time, I actually do have a cell phone. And uh, so I pick up my, you know, my, my giant Nokia and it's ringing. I can't recognize the number and I answer it. And it's, it's this guy comes on and says, hey, it's so-and-so uh, from the office of Omar Manaya. And Omar Manaya took over yeah. as the GM. It's his first GM job as the uh, Montreal Expos. And I said, oh boy, here it comes. And uh, he gets on and he's like, Jeff, we've loved everything you've done for us. We know you've been in the organization since uh, you got drafted. Can't, couldn't appreciate all your hard work and starts going through the, the, you know, the, the talk. And he goes, but we had an opportunity to trade for an everyday third baseman. And I'm like, man, you son of a bitch. I'm the third baseman. Damn it. You know, all of a sudden the ego kicks in. Right. And I'm going, What? <laughs> And, and, he, and he goes, yeah, we got an opportunity to trade you. And I went, all right. I'm like, where am I going? And of course I go, who's it for? And he <laughs> goes, well, it's for Chris Truby from the Houston Astros. And I went, freaking Chris Truby? That's your everyday guy? <laughs> this is going to kill me if he hears this. But I was like, damn, all right. But then at the same time, I went, the Houston Astros, I go, dude, they're off. I mean, they're two years removed from winning the central three years in a row. And I'm thinking about Biggio. I'm thinking about Bagwell, Billy Wagner, some of these guys. And I'm going, damn, I got an opportunity to go into a friggin' star studded clubhouse. And, uh, so I went back, I said, okay, appreciate everything. <laughs> You'll love this swing. I go back to the clubhouse. I'm like, well, I guess I got to pack up my, my expos stuff or get my gear ready and go up to, uh, get ready to go to Kissimmee. And I go back to the clubhouse, dude, and keep in mind, it's, it's raining. I go back outside the front door of the clubhouse is a cardboard box with my name on it. Dude, my stuff was packed in that cardboard box. And it was like, see you later, Blum. Right. <laughs> they know so much more information than you ever known. And you know what? They're, they're, they're prepared. They need that other locker right? space. That's the reason why that's out there. Dude, they clean house. This is cool, Blummer, though. But you get over to the Astros. You're the opening day starter at third base. And there's a story to that, too. So uh, tell us what that meant to you. Because you said uh, Hall of Famers, Bagwell and Biggio. And uh, listen, uh, Billy Wagner, who should be in the Hall of Fame, by the way. I digress yes. on that yep. one. Uh, but uh, tell us about your opening day and being that starting third baseman. Yeah, because I didn't know what was going on. You know, I'm stuck in my bubble in Montreal going, I got to make things work over here. And then I go over to the to the uh, Houston Astros and they're a, a National League Central contending team. And I'm I, in my mind, I'm just a guy. And, uh, you know, I get the opportunity, you know, you go through spring training. Jimmy Williams has given me a ton of playing time. And uh, I get a chance to break with the team, which is awesome. And then you get, you know, get pulled aside by Jimmy Williams. He's like, hey, you're going to be my opening day third baseman. And I'm going... Wait a minute. You've got 
Bagwell, Biggio, Adam Everett, Blum, Blanche Berkman, <laughs> Richard Hidalgo. I'm, I'm like, wait a minute. And, you know, Roy Oswalt's the opening day pitcher. I'm going, Brad Osmus behind the plate. I'm like, this is your contending team. <laughs> and uh, I, I got slotted in there. And, man, and a lot of those lineups that year, I didn't know where I was going to hit in that lineup. I was a guy that could handle the bat. And, and being a role player and – you know, not envisioning, just envisioning making teams, let alone making opening day lineups. And that was one of the greatest honors is running out on that field a couple of times in an opening day lineup. Uh, all of my opening day lineups were actually with uh, the Houston Astros. So I, I'm always grateful for that. But uh, it, it was awesome. I mean, there's no greater pride than running out onto the line, period, in, in a big league uniform. But to be able to be announced, uh, you know, when they go Craig Biggio leading off, Jeff Blum hitting second, Jeff Bagwell hitting third. Wow. You know, there's no there's no way not to to overlook, you know, that situation. And it, it was awesome. Uh, you know, what's even funnier is that uh, we played the Colorado Rockies and I hit a home run off Dan Maselli on opening day. Wow. Later that season, Dan Maselli, we pick him up off waivers. And I don't know if you know Dan all that. We I probably do. know Dan. Yeah, I was a teammate. He's a weird cat. Oh, yeah. So and he comes in the clubhouse and he's kind of got that, you know, that stern look on his face. And he's kind of mad mugging everybody. And I'm like, oh, here's the new guy. And, and I knew I hit the home run off him, but I walked up to him. I'm like, hey, Dan, nice to meet you, Jeff Blum. And he goes, yeah, I know who you are. You're that mf -er <laughs> that hit the home run off me opening day. <laughs> And walks away. Yeah, he's Dan Maselli. To, Dan Maselli to me, uh, first and foremost, I have a side story to this. But Dan Maselli yes. to me was the guy that you feared, and you didn't know why you feared him. He was one of those guys that he's got a weird look. He's got a weird personality. Um, he was my roommate in winter ball, and I and I tell you what, uh, to, and you said weird. I loved him because he's very loyal once you meet him and he trusts you. Yeah. But you have to get through those stages. And how I got through those stages is I got up in the morning in Puerto Rico for winter ball. He was coming in. Uh, so, <laughs> so he had that opportunity and he, you know, he'd take the nap and go to the field. We'd drive to the field. and But we had a, such a great relationship after that. And it took us to the 1998 of uh, San Diego Padres, where he was on very talented uh, reliever yeah. and had that split finger. And I know why the Astros picked him up. So uh, yes, the Dan Maselli, they the pitchers <laughs> don't ever forget what you do against them, especially on opening so day. So true, isn't it the guy? Oh, isn't it the guy who didn't trust Banks? Yeah, <laughs> he he doesn't like <laughs> Banks. He, he he doesn't want them to take the interest. He wants <laughs> that is hilarious. He wants to take care it. of his money. He's he's the one <laughs> with the coffee cans full of singles up on the yeah, bookshelf. Right, That's yeah. fascinating. <laughs> it's a remarkable. You guys live the life that all of us as fans have so many questions because we fantasize about what we think you're doing and there you are in the grind of it. And what's always struck me is whenever you leave the game, you talk about the relationships you have, whereas the fans were thinking of the moments you had on the field. So when I hear a story like Maselli uh, or something maybe with Ozzy, uh, it really resonates with me because on the outside, it's so much fun to look in. You know, Jeff, another name that you brought up and you and Mark kind of share it in this way, the late Kevin Towers. And the way his and other relationships have impacted your lives. Jeff, what made that relationship significant to you? Uh, it's, it's all about opportunity. And for whatever reason, Kevin, Kevin saw, saw value in me. And I think that's what any player actually wants to see is, you know, being appreciated or being seen as a valuable piece uh, to a, to an organization or to a team that you're trying to build. And Kevin actually, uh, saw that in, in me, but the person of Kevin Towers is, you know, one thing that you kind of, you can't overlook. And I didn't know that until I signed with the San Diego Padres and got a chance to see that and him, him creating an opportunity for me to come over and try and reestablish myself while doing it, you know, playing close to home meant the world to me just right off the bat. Uh, you know, and one of the more interesting things too, to me was how personally he was with the players. That was the first time I ever had an, I had a chance to see that up close and personal, you know, before it would, you know, it was Jim Beatty and Bill Stoneman where they kind of signed you and let you go on your way. They weren't in the clubhouse. Um, uh, Jerry Hunsinger with, uh, 
the Houston Astros was, you know, he wasn't aloof, but he was just, he was like, I'm the GM, you're the player, you're going to go play. Uh, and then I signed with the San Diego Padres and, and break with that team. And I think we opened in Colorado, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, uh, Mark, but we went out to uh, a bar that that opening night and kind of yep. celebrated ourselves and in the back corner i see bochi and kevin towers and we end up having drinks with them and having a good time and i'm going damn right. i'm like this guy's just a dude yeah. you know and but it kind of opened up the communication and it opened up an appreciation that this guy isn't just signing numbers or or pieces to plug into a puzzle he he, wa he wants to create a culture that's going to go out there and play hard and enjoy playing hard and that's kind of where i think kevin and i hit it off and you know, I talked about that time that I got, you know, about when I got traded to the Chicago White Sox and Kevin Towers being in that meeting, informing me that I'm getting traded to the Chicago White Sox. And he sat next to me after telling me I got traded. He goes, I know you're on a one-year contract with this year. He goes, you will be the first call I make this offseason after the World Series is over if you want to come back. And Lo and behold, we win the World Series. The first week that free agency opens, guess who calls me? Kevin Towers. And I become, an, I become a Padre for another two years. So that's where you really solidify the trust and uh, the friendship that I had with Kevin Towers. And I, I will forever be grateful for everything he's done for my career, my family. Uh, and, of course, we, we reunited in Arizona for a couple of years, too. Yeah, he personalized it uh, for me. Uh, known for, for uh, everyone calls him KT the gunslinger, so many mm -hmm. different attributes, but he did, he personalized it. He, he made the GM position um, connected with his players. And it wasn't necessarily all the time he had to have conversations with you. He just knew the perfect timing to have that message. And it resonates, especially in your personalized situation. You mentioned this and you go through all your travels and uh, everyone's career finishes up. We had to piece it together, Blummer, and I say that with all yeah, due we respect, um, we were the guys that worked hard for that opportunity, but we, are, we were appreciative of our opportunities, no matter where it was putting a major league uniform on. And I say that honestly, with all due respect, because you were a teammate first, talented player, and you went out the right way, but you had to go out and everyone else does. They take the uniform off you. And Kevin Towers was there with the Arizona Diamondbacks. What do you remember when uh, your career was finished? What was that finish like for you? Well, in, let's go back to – I finished in 2012. But if you go back to 2010, my last year with the Houston Astros, I, you know, they informed me with maybe a week to go in the season that they weren't going to pick up my option for 2011. And at, at, when they did that, I kind of called my wife uh, and I said, hey, I go, I think this is it. You know, I was kind of in that in – that, uh, you know, I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I'm old. And uh, the numbers are starting to, to falter a little bit. And I just said, you know what, I might, I might be done. And my wife kind of said, well, let's see what happens. Dude, I, I think two days after I called my wife, Kevin Towers calls me in the middle of you know, the last week of the season. Right. And I'm like, is this, is this normal? You know, is this tampering? I mean, we're like, what's going on? And he's just kind of <laughs> laughed it off. Like, who gives a crap? We're, we're talking. I'm, I'm GM of the Arizona Diamondbacks. He goes, do you want to play next year? And I'm like, if you, if you convince me to play next year, I'll play. Yeah. And I played 14 years in the big leagues, 12 of those years on one-year contracts until the last two years of my career with the Arizona Diamondbacks. Kevin Towers, KT, gave me a two-year deal with the Arizona Diamondbacks. And I wish I could have played harder, better, for him because he really stuck his neck out for me. But first year I had knee surgery and I broke my hand. So I played maybe 30 games in, in, uh, in 2011, 2012, I break with the team and middle of April, I blow out both my obliques on the left side. So I, f I completely fell apart physically and I'm, I'm just grinding away in AAA trying to fight my way back to the big league roster. And Kevin comes to Reno. We sit down in an empty restaurant. We have the conversation like, we think this is it. And I'm like, Kevin, as pissed off as I am right now, you are absolutely right. Because <laughs> there is that realization, you know, Swain, where you're just going, man, I just don't have it. You know, my, my heart is in it. My mind is in it. But my body is just not reacting the way I want to. And it's becoming harder for me to get on the field than it is to stay on the field. So we had that, he, he, he had that, you know, that fatherly conversation or the, even that best friend conversation where you kind of have to have that harsh realization that, 
th this is not going to end the way you want it to. But we kind of came to the agreement and I said, you know, if you could just give me, just give me a week, you know, I know that there's some uh, roster moves that you've got coming up. If there's a way you could just sneak me onto the roster for one more week and just let me go out as a major leaguer before I, you know, before my career ends. And he kind of said, he goes, well, let me see what I can do. And sure enough, you know, three or four days later, I'm on the big league roster and I finish uh, my career in Cincinnati and I actually get a hit in my last at bat, which fittingly is a pinch hit, uh, you know, it. base hit. And uh, we get on the plane, I land in uh, Arizona and Alan Trammell taps me on the shoulder and goes, hey, uh, uh, Kirk Gibson's in his office. He, he needs to talk to you. And I was like, this is it. Yeah. You know, and I go down there and, and Gibby, Gibby, one of the more intense and uh, you know, just, just intense. I mean, I don't know how else to explain this guy. He's just hyper intense. And he's just kind of sitting there slouched in his chair and he starts going into the spiel of, you know, it's been a good run. I'm like, Kirk, I go, man, this is it, dude. I've got nothing left, man. I gave you everything I could. I go, I go, just get rid of me. And he kind of, he sits up in his chair and he goes, yeah, he goes, we can't have you here anymore. <laughs> he said, and he kind of just, gave, he steps up and he gives me a high five and a big bro hug. And I'm like, see you later. Yeah. You know, and I, I said my goodbyes and I, and I, that was it. That was the end of my career. Plumber, so many, it's so funny, but so many people say, you know, like pitchers, they lose, they lose their fastball. They lose that zip on the fastball hitters you lose that that opportunity to to ha maintain that bat speed because uh for yeah. our listeners they oh, don't man. understand uh that miles per hour is put up after every pitch so uh, when you're at that end i always remember taking a swing at a 91 mile an hour fastball and i looked up i'm like <laughs> Uh, that felt like 95 and I, I look at 91 and I was late. So it's like, uh, you almost started unbuttoning your shirt as, as that went on. Uh, the other thing though, Blummer too, you, uh, I'm, we're not numbers guys. We were, we were just the, the guys that said, listen, man, I'm throwing it out right. there. I'm going to give you the best that I got. I'm going to be prepared. And I absolutely love that about you, but you look at the numbers and it's 99 homers. I mean, come on, Blummer. Like one more. Could, I mean, that pinch hit instead of a single could have been a homer or an even hundred. Uh, I looked at that, buddy, and I always say, you know, I, I laugh because we aren't about numbers. We're about the, the, the performance and also your teammates because that's yeah. what resonates with me. When I hear Jeff Blum, I think of a great teammate, but a guy that prepared himself to go out there and be the best he could possibly be. But, it, but isn't that the truth? I mean, with, with the way our jobs were created, we, we prepared every day as if we were going to be in the lineup every day it, because we didn't know. And I think that's, you know, and part of it is, is, is a learning process. Part of it's being on teams where you are around teammates like you mm -hmm. who had experience <clears throat> and had the opportunity to just, and you weren't, you weren't a guy that was like, this is how I do it. You were, I was like, okay, Swain's going to do that. I'm going to go do that. What is, okay, Swain's doing this. I got to check this out, you know? And then we'd have the conversation, obviously, because we were intuitive about the game. We understood the game. And when you're riding the bench, you've got to be able to manage the game. So we had a lot of conversations in that sense. And we kind of fed off each other. And I do, I talk about our experience a lot because if it wasn't for those experiences and understanding the role and moving forward, it probably wouldn't have lasted as long for me as it did. Yeah. I, 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 I thank you for those comp compliments because it, we resonate our careers through knowledge. And it's fascinating because uh, what's taken you to another career is your broadcasting. And obviously, I'm in that as well. I don't think listeners and people that watch us understand that the beauty of our new profession is exactly what we learn throughout our experiences. And that's one of the main reasons why I love broadcasting because uh, you're exposed. There's a lot of uh, times where you you feel uncomfortable. Fan involvement saying, hey, I can't stand hearing him say this, this, and this. Um, <laughs> I love the fact that I can say uh, messages and thoughts and being able to uh, resonate with a fan about how important teammates are, how important chemistry is. Um, that resonates to me. And all of the knowledge that encompassed your career, my career, 
That's what we are talking about. Those are the experiences that people taught us about hitting, um, work ethic, uh, things that you did before the game. I think that's amazing. What has resonated with you with your new career in broadcasting as the Astros uh, color commentator? I love the game again. And I think that was, you know, towards the end of my career, it becomes a little bit of a grind and becomes a business and you start to worry about other things than actually the game. But since getting back in the booth, uh, you know, it really brought back that love for the game. And one of the notes I made for myself when I started this job is just in, in my mind, pretending or having the visualization that I'm broadcasting to that 12 year old kid, because mm -hmm. it's not just, it's, it's not just loving my job. It's loving the game. You know, I want to promote the game. I want to give people the idea that baseball is a very enjoyable game. And to your point about a lot of our experiences and a lot of our, um, our knowledge being grown in the dugout and in the clubhouse really comes through and becomes a valuable piece of broadcasting because, you know, we, we had the opportunity to be in the mix on the field with the experience, but we also had the opportunity to sit behind the scenes and see how managers work, see how, you know, the importance of a bench coach or what a pitching coach is thinking throughout the course of a game. And all of those things kind of come out at points during the course of a game that you're calling. So it's a lot of fun for me to be able to try and bring some of those ideas or maybe some of that insight that you don't normally hear through the microphone and give those fans maybe a look behind the curtain a little bit. I love the way you're able to uh, not only convey your point on television so well, but you're also taking it to, uh, to our area of the world now into the slums of podcasting. In the uh, Bleacher Bums podcast hey, you. you put together. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, what, what, what's the driver there? Tell us about the podcast, how it's going. Well, I, I hope it's much like you guys, where we just, we have information and we have opportunity and you're creating it. You know, we're... <laughs> Swin and I are grinders. You know, he mentioned mm -hmm. it. We're, we find opportunities. We create opportunities. And I think it's the fact that we don't take anything for granted because it could be ripped away in a heartbeat. Um, you know, there may be somebody younger, better, faster, stronger that uh, is aiming for that job. So you're trying to create uh, create a brand now. I understand. I think I understand what that means to create a brand and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, have your voice out there and create relevance. But uh, the podcast kind of started, uh, we started Bleacher Blums. It's gone through about three or four different names before we got to, to Bleacher Blums. But uh, my friend David Tuttle and I, we met, we had actually played against each other. He went to Santa Clara University. I was at the University of California, and we would always play, you know, in that Northern California area. So we had knowledge of each other, but didn't know each other. Uh, fast forward to when our kids are going to elementary school down in Southern California and we're dropping our kids off at school. And I kind of see this dude kind of eyeballing me from across the way. And I'm going, man, who is this guy? I know I know him, but I don't know who he is. And finally we meet, you know, we start to talk and it turns into, you know, this daily conversation and by our cars talking about sports, <laughs> talking about raising multiples. Cause my boy, David Tuttle has uh, uh, twin daughters and it just kind of morphed into this conversation. And then I get the job as a broadcaster because I met him when I was playing and I get the job as a broadcaster and I'm kind of thinking about it and I'm going, man, one of these days I'm going to get you on a, on a microphone. We're going to have these conversations. We're going to record them and put them on, uh, on a track somewhere and let people listen to them because I thought he was really good at it. And uh, just about a year and a half ago, I actually held him to it and we started to record our podcast and we've had a blast ever since. And uh, it's just been you know, it's been a lot of fun. It's, it's uh, one of those things where you kind of have that release because you guys know as well as I do, when you're connected to a network or a team, you're kind of, you're not handcuffed, but you're a little more protective of what you say. And I think the podcast has kind of opened up the opportunity to maybe be a little, a little more opinionated and speak about what we want to speak about as opposed right. to what's given to us by a producer. Right. And, and that's so good. I mean, David Tuttle, just for, for our listeners, nine, minor league seasons, did play on Team USA, um, as you mentioned, uh, pitched at Santa Clara. Um, it's interesting because you have aspects that you want to be able to get that message across, and, and, it, and it has a lot to do with positivity about the game and how it grows. So um, listen to that podcast. You do an outstanding job, Blummer. I Thank absolutely you. love it. Um, hey, it's family first, and, and, and I don't want this podcast to be done without mentioning about your family. You have mentioned Corey, your, your wife, also, Mia, the, the oldest daughter. And then you have the triplets. Um, you're out, man, Blummer. Uh, what's that? <laughs> what, what's that dinner table like? 
it, because oh, you have a voice. You're a broadcaster, but I'm telling you, you probably stop talking when the when the dinner starts. I, I absolutely spoken like a true father, by the way, speaking to you about the dinner table, because that's the one time that you actually get everybody together at once. Right. And, you know, especially in the last two years with the pandemic and kids not going to school, I'm not traveling. So there's a lot more opportunity to be around them. So we, we've really done a good job of growing together. But the dinner table is one of the more f- hilarious things because you get I have four daughters a wife, two female dogs. I've got uh, hip waders and floaties for the estrogen ocean I'm swimming in. <laughs> and it's been a blast. You know, the, the true blessing of it all is that I'm learning on a daily basis how to how to manage a household with women and trying to understand uh, their needs and how I can mix in. But the dinner table is one of the more entertaining spots just because you can literally make a statement about you know, say I, I say I ask about how did volleyball practice go, and it turns into a forty-five minute back and forth where I just I sit back casually and just knife and fork my meal and enjoy and just kind of drink in the, everything that's coming at me because, you know, I, I don't, it's surround sound at the ta- at the table because everybody is getting their shots in, everybody's having their conversations, and usually I fade into the background when uh, those things get going. But I wouldn't trade it for the world. It's been amazing. Well, I'll tell you what, we are so thrilled you're able to find a little slice of time. Uh, <laughs> well, school finally started, so I get my routine back. Right. <laughs> to, to spend with us, that is something else. But I tell you, from every parent out there, we get it. We get it. Yeah. And we appreciate we you being with us, man. Jeff Blum, 14 years in a big league, six different teams, part of that 2005 White Sox World Series team, immortalized with a statue out in front of the ballpark there as he's smiling shy for that. But uh, but it's a heck of an accomplishment. And by the way, catch him uh, calling Astros games and, of course, on the podcast of his called Bleacher Blums. Great title, along with his buddy David Tuttle. So be sure to check that out. Jeff, thanks a bunch, buddy. No, I appreciate it. I feel much better about myself after talking to you guys. Thank you. Plummer, you're the best, man. You are the best. Continue your, your great work, and I love you, man. No, I love you too, man. Always good talking to you, Swain. Well, folks, thanks for checking out Major League Beginnings presented by Bet Online. And if you had as much fun as we did, please go ahead, hit the subscribe button anywhere you usually download your podcast from. You pick the platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, whatever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.